Okay, let's get to where we're at this morning. And uh, we are looking at uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. And um, this has got to get turned on to work. Here we go. And there it is. And on the count of three, you're going to read it. One, two, three. One more time. Father, we thank you again for your love for us in Jesus Christ and the way in which you have shown it and exhibited that love in such extravagant, generous, gracious ways. And for the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit who takes what you have done in Jesus and makes it possible and available and applicable to our lives. And we ask that that same Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, would help us with a voice to speak, ears to hear, minds to understand, hearts to comprehend, but particularly as we leave this place, this room, this building, this property, this facility, and we go out into our homes, our relationships, uh, Lord, to the places where we get our education and where we work and where we recreate and where we get our services, And that you would help us by the same Spirit to live out what it means to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And to do that living out in practical, meaningful, tangible ways. And so we give you praise and give you thanks now and commit ourselves to you. And do these next moments and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So this is the ninth commandment, and behind the ninth ninth commandment is the issue of our relationship with our neighbor. Now, we're going to talk about our neighbor when we get to the last commandment. But also behind this ninth commandment is a bit of a problem. There's a story about a king who uh, ruled a country where the water was poisoned. And the poison water made the people insane. But the king had pure water brought to him. But gradually he began to realize that he was unable really to rule his people because he wasn't crazy. He couldn't understand his people. So what he did is he had a little bit of the poison water added to his water and made him just a little crazy. And then he could rule more effectively. Now here's the point. It's about the tension of living in the world that we live in and being not of the world. You see, what's out there is also in here. What goes on out there affects me in here. And you as well. And what goes on out there, outside this building, outside this property, influences and gets in here. The glad tidings. Now, we may not identify with commandments 7 and 8. We may not identify with stealing or with adultery, but I'm pretty confident that we can all identify with this ninth 
commandment. Now, I was going to begin this morning by asking you this question. Have you ever lied? But I know you have. So, just for curiosity's sake, is there anybody in the room that you've never, ever lied? Raise your hand. Be careful now. Because if anybody raises their hand, you've already lied. (laughs) What is the biggest lie that you have ever told? What is the biggest lie that you have ever told? What is the biggest lie that has been ever told to you? Now, before we get to that, So many times, we as Christians, we don't always make the connection between the Old and New Testaments. Between the Old and New Testaments. Now, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, makes a statement. It's a text that a lot of us as Pentecostals, as biblical Christians, will recognize. And Jesus says this, he says, if your brother or sister, you can do the, uh, do the, uh, calcul- the uh, adjustment. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother or sister. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. That every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Do you know where that comes from? That comes from the Old Testament. Specifically, it comes to us from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 19, verse 15, where Moses says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in conviction with any offense that he or she has committed only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. Now, the ninth commandment is built on this reality. And then there's this. When the chief priests are trying to um, incriminate Jesus... One of the things that they try and do is they try and fulfill the Old Testament law by getting some people to witness against Jesus, to actually bear false witness against Jesus as part of the incriminating and trial process. This is what it says in Matthew 26, verses 59 and 60. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony. Now they've already broken the Old Testament law against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward. It is amazing to me how we can justify setting aside what we believe, what we know our values, to get what we want. By the way, listen to the last part of the text In Matthew chapter 18, truly I say to you, Jesus is still speaking, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, 
And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again, I say to you, if two agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. What Jesus says here in Matthew 18 goes right back to the truths of the Old Testament. Matter of fact, right back to the Ninth Commandment. And that's the principle of the combined power of two or three witnesses. Now, this is connected, as I said, directly to the Old Testament and to the Ninth Commandment. But there's also this. Jesus also said about him and his father... He said these words. He said in John 8, he said, In your law it is written, in your law, this is an interesting statement, in your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sends me bears witness about me. If any two will agree. Now, Paul picks this up as well. In 1 Corinthians, or rather 2 Corinthians chapter 13, he says, he says, every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. He says it again in Timothy, and then Hebrews, of course, picks it up. But we also know today that our judicial law is built upon this truth, upon the ninth commandment. The concept of an eyewitness. And that brings us to this. Now, most of us know that the twin to our text in Exodus is Exodus 20 is Deuteronomy chapter 5. And both of those texts in the Bible give us the list of the Ten Commandments. However, the nuance or the meaning of what it means to bear false witness is different in Exodus than it is in Deuteronomy. The nuance of bearing false witness in Exodus means something that is untrue or lying. Now, there are various kinds of lying. The Bible is full of lies. One of the biggest is in Genesis chapter 3, where the serpent says to Eve, you will not surely die. And the second one is, you will be like God. Now, lying and falsehood makes a person least like God and most like Satan. Now, let that sink in for a moment. Lying and falsehood makes a person least like God and most like Satan. Jesus, talking about Satan or the devil, said this. There is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, by definition, a lie 
is a voluntary speaking of an untruth with an intent to deceive or harm. Not that anybody in this room needs a definition, including me. We all know what lying is about. It's what we call the Pinocchio Principle. All children lie from time to time. What's interesting is that it doesn't seem to stop, even as we get older. Colossians tells us, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Now, lies come in all shapes and sizes. There are white lies and there are whoppers. Now, white lies are usually lies that we tell so that we don't hurt other people's feelings. So, for example, do you think I look fat in these pants? Thank you, thank you. He said no. The rest of you do not answer that. I am not that secure. So that's a white lie. A whopper is one that is intended to deceive, and a whopper is a lie that we tell about having an affair or about stealing money. Slander is a form of lying. Now, slander is lying about a person's reputation or character. Slander is something that is spoken. When it's written down, it becomes libel. But it's the same thing. And the Bible speaks about this. Ephesians tells us to not slander. And then Proverbs says, Proverbs says, whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets. But he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps things, keeps the thing covered. Now, the opposite of slander is confidentiality. Now, the issue of confidentiality, a breach of confidentiality is not only that I know something about Pastor Kevin and I share it with Nancy. That's a breach of confidentiality. But a breach of confidentiality also is the idea that I am suggesting that I know something about Pastor Kevin, but I can't tell you what it is. But I've left you with the insinuation. I have insinuated something about another person. Now, most people, when they think about lying, do not think about this one. Silence. Silence. Silence is also a form of a violation of the ninth commandment by what we did not say. When we know the truth and instead of writing a situation, we just remain silent. And here's something. In the Old Testament, a person who refuses to give right evidence to bear true witness, when he or she has evidence to give, 
is condemned as severely as a person who bears false witness of a person who lies. And then there are those pesky half-truths. We give some of the facts, and in doing so, we twist the truth, and we give the truth a slant to suit ourselves. Now, I want to give you an example, a biblical example, of the downward spiral of a half-truth. I bring you to Genesis chapter 12, and Abraham, dad, the father, in Genesis chapter 12, he doesn't technically lie. He says to Pharaoh that Sarah, his spouse, is his sister. And I know it's a bit warped, and we're going to just have to move past that because I don't have time to get into that. But he tells Pharaoh that Sarah, his spouse, is his sister, but in reality, it's not technically a lie because it is a half-truth. But the reason why Abraham doesn't want to tell Pharaoh because he's afraid of his life, for his life. In Genesis chapter 20, or 26 rather, sorry, Genesis chapter 20, he does the same thing with Abimelech, a half-truth. He tells Abimelech that his spouse Sarah is his sister. It's a half-truth. But follow this. Father Abraham, the dad, tells a half-truth. But Isaac, the son... That half-truth becomes a full lie in Genesis chapter 26. Now follow it through with me. What began as a half-truth by dad becomes a full lie with son, and then it becomes a full-blown deception with the grandson. And Genesis 27 says, and this is Isaac speaking to Jacob. And he says, and the Bible says, his father Isaac said to him, who are you? And he answered, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Jacob, the name, means supplanter, the replacement, the usurper. It also means deceiver. And what began in grandfather as a half-lie develops in the next generation, the son, as a full lie. And in the next generation after that becomes a full-blown deception of character. It's called the downward spiral of a half-truth. Talk about the sins of the fathers being visited on the sons or daughters. So an exodus, bearing false witness, means to be untrue or lying. In Deuteronomy, false witness is to be taken to mean something that is insincere, empty, or frivolous. We do that by carelessness. Idle, frivolous words. Now, Jesus, of course, said this. He said, I tell you the truth, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. Now, folks, I'm going to be honest with you. 
Uh, just like you, I have lied. Hopefully not in the last 24 hours. But who knows? But I've spoken careless words. And I'm not looking forward to giving an account for them. But I've spoken them. Flattery. Flattery is saying something to a person's face that you wouldn't say behind their back. Flattery will get you everywhere. Praise, flattery is praise with ulterior motives. Flattery is nothing more than insincere compliments. You know what flattery is? Flattery is this. Saying something to somebody that you think or we think they want to hear. Telling people what we think they want to hear. And then the next one is exaggeration. I have told you a million times. Enough said, huh? To tell a story in such a way that makes us better or look better than we actually are. You okay? Look at your neighbor and say, I'm okay. And are you okay? Say back to them, are you okay? Good. You feeling a little tension lift there? Yeah, I know. You're feeling guilty. I got it. Me too. <clears throat> I felt guilty long before you. And then there's this. We have to talk about gossip. I know we shouldn't, but we have to. Gossip fits under both definitions in Exodus and Deuteronomy. Gossip, you know, is idle chatter about others. The problem with gossip is this, that we don't only gossip about what is not true, we gossip about what is true. There's a story told about three guys who were in a, um, some sort of recovery program. And after a few weeks of being there, they start to get used to each other and comfortable, and so they go out for coffee. And uh, the one guy says, uh, you know, he says, I, I got to confess. He says, you know, I'm a Christian, and uh, I, have a, I have an addiction to gambling, and I must confess that every time I look into the offering plate, I'm tempted well, the second guy says, wow. He says, well, to be honest with you, he says, I have a problem with alcohol, and I just hope the congregation never finds out. And the third guy says, huh, I have a problem with gossip, and I can't wait to get out of here. <laughs> the words of a whisper of a gossip are like delicious morsels. Isn't that a great line? Like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. And that brings us finally to this. Maybe that's why there is so much said in the Bible about our tongue. Matter of fact, the Bible has more to say about the tongue, the lips, and the mouth than about anything else. In the book of Proverbs alone, 
The lips and mouth and tongue are mentioned 150 times. In 31 chapters, that's an average of five times per chapter. And in Proverbs 6, verses 16 to 18, Proverbs says that there are two of the seven things that God hates. Now, that's pretty strong language. Two of the seven things that God hates are these. A lying tongue and a false witness who bears out lies. And you know, as well as I do, that Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21 says that we have the power of life and death in our tongues. We know that, that, that our tongues has the power to corrode, and it has the power to nurture. James, in James chapter uh, 1, verses 1 to 5, James talks about the tongue, and he says this. He says, the tongue is petite, but it is powerful. It is the littlest organ in the body, but it is lethal. But Jesus' words, I think, speak the clearest to me and to you, to us. When he said this, the good person, out of the good treasure of his or her heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his or her treasure, produces evil. And here it is. For out of the abundance of my heart, my mouth speaks. We do not speak off the top of our heads. We speak out of the depths of our heart. If you want to know what's going on inside a person, Pay attention to their words. Pay attention not just to what they say, but how they say it. <clears throat> I've learned over the years, preachers always watch preachers. When we go to church, we go to listen to the preacher. I suspect worship people go to worship. When I go to church, I listen to the preacher. This is what I've discovered, <clears throat> and forgive me for this, if this sounds judgmental, but I don't mean it to be, it's just an observation. I have learned that if I listen to a preacher long enough, I can know what's going on in his or her life. If I listen to him or her long enough, frequently enough. In other words, you have listened to me enough times by now that you should have some idea of what my life is like. What's going on inside of me. If you want to know what's going on inside of you, then listen to our words. Step back and listen to our words to our spouses. Step back and listen to our words to our children, or step back and listen to our words about our parents, 
or about a brother or sister or a Christian brother or sister, or about the government or whatever it is, or whoever it is. We're going to go to communion. But before we do, I want to share a statement, a quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now, the language is dated, so I think you can do the conversion. He said this. He said, the man or woman who fashions a visionary ideal of the community. The community he's talking about here is the church, a church, this church, we'll say. The man or woman who fashions a visionary idea of this church demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. And he or she enters the community of Christians with his or her demands. And when things do not go his way, he calls the effort a failure. And when his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees the community, the church, going to smash, going to pieces. So he becomes first. An accuser of his brethren, then an accuser of God, and then finally the despairing accuser of himself. We belong to this church. And we all know that this church is broken because we're broken. It's not perfect here by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, just look at your pastors. Don't laugh, because we look at you too. And every church gets the pastor they deserve. And every pastor gets the congregation he or she deserves. That's the way that goes. We're broken. But here's the problem. This is what Bonhoeffer is saying about words. He says that we all have these ideas, and most of our ideas about what the church should be are not normal. They're not healthy. They're not ideal. They're, we think the church should be something more than it actually is. Better. And maybe they're right. I don't know. But when it doesn't happen, the first thing that happens is this. We start accusing each other. You're a hypocrite. You need to be a better Christian. You need to be whatever, whatever, whatever. And then they move on, and we move on, and when, we have, and when we've accused our brethren, then we actually accuse God. God, why don't you do something to fix this mess called Glad Tidings Church? Right? We've all accused God. What kind of church are you running here, God? And then finally, when we've accused each other, and we've accused God, then lastly we accuse ourselves and we say, what in the world was I thinking coming to this church? Words, they matter. Expectations, they matter. Folks, if it wasn't for the mercies of God that are new every morning, I couldn't be your pastor. And if it wasn't for the mercies of God every morning, you couldn't be the people of God. That's how that goes. We're just people. We are broken, and but for the grace of God, none of us would be here or deserve to be here.